I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hello and welcome to episode seven of Jack, the podcast for all things special counsel, which I suppose we now have to designate as Merrick Garland has appointed a second special counsel. It is Sunday, January 15th. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew McCabe. Oh my gosh, we have a ton of news to cover in today's show, including a massive round of new subpoenas, uh, new information on Rudy Giuliani and his role in fundraising, and 30 gigabytes of evidence handed over to the special counsel by the 1-6 committee that wasn't, was not released to the public. But first, we, Allison, we have our listener question of the week. I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about the uh, response that we got to this new part of the show. A lot of great questions. It was hard to pick one from all the good ones. But I'm going to go with this one about classified information. I don't have a name, so I can't attribute it to uh, any one of our listeners. But the unnamed listener writes in, is the U.S. government's oversight of classified documents as sloppy as it appears? I.e., how is it that Trump was able to leave the White House with anything that did not belong to him? Does the government not maintain an, in an inventory of all classified documents and who has them? The empty folders that were found, how could the government not know what was in them? As you can tell, I'm more than a little pissed at the apparent complete lack of control over material that could be dangerous in the wrong hands. All right, so that covers the gamut of concern about classified information. So I'm going to try to um, touch upon a few things about classified and hopefully, um, I don't know if I can resolve your concern, but maybe put it in a context that makes it a little more understandable. So as um, I'm sure most listeners understand, when it comes to classification, there's only three levels of classification in the government. They are confidential, secret, and top secret. And you're, uh, to get a clearance, you have to have a background check. Um, and uh, that's how you, uh, once you pass the background check, you get a clearance at one of those three levels. But to access top secret or any of those classified materials, you have to also have a need to know. Then even though there are only three levels of classification, there are additional limitations on who can see what. And the next big limit is what we call Sensitive Compartmentalized Information, or SCI information. You've heard that the Mar-a-Lago documents, some of them were stamped SCI. So SCI is a designation given to some top secret information. And it basically says that if something is SCI, it must be maintained in a SCIF, or a Sensitive Compartmentalized Information Facility. So when I was working in counterterrorism uh, in the FBI, my office was a SCIF, so we could have TS, SCI material wherever we were working, uh, but it had to stay there, couldn't leave uh, the vault, as they call it, unless you had authorization to transport it essentially to another SCIF. And then beyond SCI information, there's something called code word protected information. So easiest way to understand this is the most sensitive programs that the federal government, the intelligence community is involved in are protected by code words. So any kind of writings or talking about that stuff is covered by a protective code word. And you have, you have to be on a very small list of people that has access to what they call the cabinet that contains that code word material. Of all these different types of material, the only one that's actually serialized and tracked is code word protected information. That stuff, when it comes to your office, it's usually in the hands of one of your agency's security officers. They make you sign for it before they let you look at it. You can look at it and you typically have to give it right back. Even if you're working in a skiff, that stuff gets taken and stored by security officers in a special place. And there's a list of all the people who are exposed to that particular code word information at any time. None of the rest of that stuff beneath code word is actually serialized and tracked. Now, I know that seems crazy and irresponsible, but essentially there are extensive rules at each level of classification about how you're allowed to transport and store and work with that information. People receive training on it every year. You have to renew your training if you're in the intelligence community and you're, you have access to this sort of sensitive stuff. 
and you you know the the government relies on the responsibility and the dedication of its employees who have been granted this special access to treat the information correctly. So I'll give you one story that maybe puts some of our current conversations about this in context. I had the weird kind of experience of being exposed to this information at many different levels in the FBI, starting as a just mid-level manager in counterterrorism. I was literally buried in TSSCI information. I worked in a SCIF. Every day I'd get dozens of TSSCI documents delivered to me several times a day, have to read it all. I could carry it out of my office and go show it to someone else. It was typically printed out in hard copy. I could discuss it with other people because they all had the same clearance and need to know that I had. But at the end of the day, all that stuff stayed in the SCIF. It never left there. Fast forward all the way up to being a principal of an agency. So serving as deputy director and then for a while as acting director, I saw it from a very different perspective. When you are at that level, you basically have a need to be able to access classified and TS, SCI, this, all this stuff all the time, 24 hours a day. When you're at work, when you're at home, when you travel across the country, even when you travel overseas. And the way that's done is specialized security people on your staff. It is their sole responsibility to take that stuff, transport it, carry it, store it, protect it, and give it to you when you need it. So while I was buried with it as a mid-level manager at work, as a principal, it's literally following you around everywhere you go. When the director travels overseas, they actually set up a portable skiff in the hotel suite where the director stays. And special security folks are, are uh, responsible for taking care of all that stuff. So it is not hard for me to understand how a person like a vice president of the United States, who certainly has a need to have access to that sort of material all of the time, and staffers are constantly carrying it around and giving it to him to get him ready for the next briefing or, or phone call with a world leader or something like that. It's following him where he goes, to hotels, to his residence, to his office, that sort of thing. And it's also not hard to see how occasionally in this flow of hundreds, certainly thousands of pages of documents, that every once in a while, one of them gets put in the wrong folder that doesn't have the right markings on it and can be left behind or misplaced or left in the residence or something like that. There were notorious situations when I was in the FBI of agency folks who were, oh, I don't mean the CIA, I mean government agency writ large, I won't identify which one, who were overseas and who left materials like this in hotel rooms, right? In places where we are, um, you know, interacting with hostile foreign governments. So it does happen. There is a ton of this information and the need to be able to work with it is intense and it never ends. Now, that being said, people need to be responsible and follow the rules and their training about how to how to work with this stuff, but mistakes do happen, particularly at that level around principals who are constantly trafficking in this stuff, looking at it, carrying it, needing it here, needing it there. It's really not hard for me to understand how mistakes can happen. Now, that being said, that's all very different than someone, i.e. a former president, deciding to fight the government for over a year to hold on to things that he, even if there was an inadvertent in his in the way he came in the, into possession of that stuff, he absolutely knew what he had and fought hard and is still fighting hard to hold on to many of those things. So we'll get more into that later. But that is basically a little overview of what it's like kind of in the real world of intelligence community handling classified. And, you know, Andrew, well, first of all, since we're on this topic, maybe we should just discuss uh, uh, the appointment of this second special counsel, special counsel 2.0, uh, because his, his name is Robert Hur. I want to discuss who he is and some of those things. And I also I'm wondering, you know, with after the explanation you just gave about, you know, if you're a principal and you're being followed around with you know thousands of pages of classified yeah. every day to do your job, it, you could see how it would inadvertently end up in a wrong folder or somewhere. And we don't serialize anything unless it's that code word classified uh, stuff, that code word protected information. And, I, and you know, I was going to ask, is this because there's just so much classified information out there? It would be you would need to hire 8000 people to serialize it all and follow it uh, and sign it out. I mean, it seems like 
a gargantuan task that would actually limit and hinder, you know, a national security if if that kind of protocol was necessary for a principal to be able to look at this stuff when it needs to be looked at. Um, and, you know, there's also some classified material that requires the creator of the document to give permission to anyone to look at the document. I, I, I know I was looking really into these different classification markings when we had found all of these classified documents uh, in Trump's desk and in Mar-a-Lago with that photo that came out. And I looked up all the little SCI and, you know, TS and what all these different things, what all these different things mean. And uh, I'd seen that too. That's ORCON, right? That's yeah. the that's the designation ORCON, originator controlled. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And so I, I, I just imagine it would be impossible to serialize all the classified that we use and handle in, in given situations at all. It's certainly hard for me to think of a way that would be easy to do that. Now, and, and I will say, I'll give you a caveat, all these things that I'm telling you, this is consistent with my experience. I left government a couple of years ago. Maybe they've changed the way they handle some of these things now. But um, and, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about doing it better. And if there is a way to economically and effectively come up with a way to control this stuff and serialize it, keep track of every single copy, terrific. I can't imagine how that would happen. You know, when you receive a a TS document over your TS email, you can print that document out because sometimes you have to, to be able to sit down and work with other people. I got to lug your computer around, you know, into a conference room or something. So there's very real world um, impacts on doing that. But like you said, or, you know, Orcon, originator control material. So think about this, like, especially in the post 9-11 world where we have such a premium on information sharing and working with partners, collaborating with, you know, other law enforcement and intelligence agencies, foreign partners, things like that, that has taken the handling of this sort of sensitive information and complicated it in all kinds of ways. But if we pull back our ability to, to talk about it and transport it and store it, we recede into that cave of sharing less. And there's, there is risk in doing that as well. So these things are far more complicated than they seem. You know, you think about originator control, when you get sensitive classified information from a foreign government, that is very normally originator controlled, right? It should be the foreign government. It's their information. They should, before you can share it with someone else with a third party, you have to go back to the foreign government you got it from and ask for their permission. So, you know, these restrictions are necessary, but they also really slow things down in terms of uh, getting the work done. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe someday we'll have the technology where we can have like paper thin GPS control and, you know, be able to, you know, <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> find my document on iPhone or whatever and yeah. be able to track yeah. it um, that way or some sort of, you know, I'm thinking of just some sort of the technology that we would might be able to use. But then, of course, that's all hackable and we'd have to think about that. But right. I want to talk about the appointment of the special counsel, Robert Herr. Uh, he was appointed uh, 10 weeks after Department of Justice uh, knew about uh, there being uh, a few, I think, less, fewer than a dozen uh, classified documents found at Biden's pen office, um, where we, I don't think he's been there since 2019, uh, and then uh, additional documents found at his Wilmington, Delaware residence in his garage. And it's it took it took ten weeks and, and basically what Merrick Garland does is he picked up this guy who's one of the two Trump holdovers a Trump appointees held over as a U.S. attorney. Uh, his name is Lausch, and he put Lausch in charge of deciding, uh, uh, doing it uh, not an investigation but a review of the situation. And then what happened is Lausch made a recommendation to Merrick Garland that a special counsel was warranted in this case, and that is when. Uh, and I'm sure as soon as that recommendation came over, that's when Merrick Garland decided to appoint Robert Herr. Uh, and we'll talk about him in a moment. Uh, and I think, you know, what, I, what I'd like to talk about first is I see a lot of folks, uh, including former FBI uh, and Intel folks, saying that in order to appoint a special counsel, you must have evidence of a crime and that's not my reading of the special counsel regulations. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like at least having talked to you in prior, you know, iterations of special counsel investigations, Mueller, that in order to open an investigation, there just has to sort of be something weird uh, that you have to 
determine whether or not there was a crime. Not you, you open an investigation to determine whether a crime was committed. And I don't think there's probable cause of a crime required to open an investigation. Can you talk a little bit about that and this special counsel regulation? Because I, I feel like people are kind of jumping to conclusions and I just want to straighten it out. Sure. Yeah. So I'm gonna. I may. I may take that. You, I may take your phrasing and dub it the new legal something weird standard. I like. <laughs> I like that a lot. It fits in a lot of places here. Something's um, fishy. <laughs> yeah. So I. Yeah, so my my understanding of the special counsel regs are is the same as yours. It doesn't require proof of a crime. That would be silly, right? Why are you Why are you bringing in a big pro to come in and do your investigation when you've already proven the crime? Uh, there isn't a a standard kind of burden of proof assigned to it, like preponderance of the evidence or reasonable doubt or anything like that. It is very similar to the FBI standard for opening a full field investigation. So a full field investigation is the is the broadest and most you know kind of powerful, I guess, investigative authority that you could have. Let's use Crossfire Hurricane as an example. Exactly. So. In the FBI uh, Diog, the Domestic Investigations and Operations Guideline, it lays out exactly what the standard is to open a full field investigation. And it is when you have information that indicates that a crime has occurred or may have occurred, or information that indicates there is a threat to national security or, or may be a threat to national security. So the special counsel a standard is very similar. It's just that you have information that a crime may have been committed. That's not proof. It's something, right? It's a articulable um, fact or scenario or or observation or report, right? A complaint, what have you, and that that information could be a crime. And that's why you have the special counsel in to investigate it and figure that out. Yeah, and the special counsel reg. It, it doesn't even say articulable fact or anything like that. It doesn't go as deep as your dialogue over at uh, the FBI. It just says if you have determined a criminal investigation is warranted. Right. A and a criminal investigation can be warranted for m multiple reasons. It could be for public interest. It could be for conflict of interest. It could be for, uh, I mean, because there were classified documents in the in the Biden case in non-skiff areas, that could That's be right. a reason to investigate. And that doesn't sure. mean, and it is not a crime to store classified information without corrupt intent in a, in a non-skiff. So I think I, that's kind of how I'm, uh, I'm approaching it in my mind. And, and, and Merrick Garland sort of bore that out in his announcement. You know, this is, um, you know, there's, this is in, very important that we look into this and get to the bottom of it and and you know that there are no conflicts of interest and that we don't favor one party over the other and you know yeah. it's just, but there's a huge public interest for this and national security interest as well that's right and, and i mean you know let's put the special counsel choice aside the fact that the current president former vice president has classified documents at his residence in a garage I mean, obviously, investigation is warranted on two levels, right? First, of course, anytime there is what we refer to as a spill, that's anytime classified information ends up someplace it shouldn't be, people in the community refer to it as a spill of classified. So anytime you have a spill, there's going to be a damage assessment. So the information has to be recovered and somebody, either security professionals or investigators in the in the FBI, it would be counterintelligence investigators, look at it to determine if there's been uh, damage to national security. Did we expose a source or a method or something like that? So, so here you have information in a, in a you know, classified information in a non-approved, being stored in a non-approved place that has to happen. And there's kind of a per se, something wrong happened here. If this stuff ended up in that place where it's not supposed to be, of course, you have to have an investigation to figure out how that happened. It doesn't mean anyone's going to be charged with a crime. In fact, I would say most of the time when the FBI gets referrals about spills, they those, in, those inquiries do not uh, end up in, in criminal charges. And that's because of this level of intent it has to be an intentional 
mishandling or an intentional, you know, removal of national defense information to warrant criminal charges. And oftentimes, most of the time, I would venture, it's very hard to prove that someone had that level of intent. Yeah. And most of the time, because it's, I'm assuming, accidental when some of this stuff spills, you know. That's right. Uh, And, you know, something else I keep hearing a lot about is that this was discovered a couple of days before the election. And a lot of folks are uh, upset that this wasn't announced uh, ahead of the election, knowing full well uh, that you're not supposed to announce overt investigatory steps within 60 days of an election. Uh, uh, and then, you know, I uh, the pushback to that is, well, he wasn't even on the ballot. Do you have to be on the ballot to to for it to be an impactful to an election? I mean, the, the 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 whole DOJ went dark 60 days before the midterms with the Trump investigations. Fonnie Willis went dark before, uh, you know, the elections with the investigation into Trump, because even though Trump was not on the ballot, he is the de facto leader of the Republican Party. And announcing overt investigatory steps into him or any of his allies could be perceived as having an impact on a national election, even though he's not on the ballot. What do you think about that? I think that's right. I think the policy, the DOJ 60-day policy, honestly, internally, is something that's not really understood with with laser etched specificity. We all know, generally, you're not supposed to do things within that 60-day limit that could uh, impact the results of the election. So it's not, I don't believe it's specifically drafted to like, you can't do something to a candidate for office during that period, but that's how it's typically interpreted. This case is different because you're talking about the leader of a party or, you know, somebody who's uh, thought, you know, at that time, of course, thought to be uh, going to run for president and the next election. So it's not... 100% black and white. But I do think that in these moments, DOJ typically errs on the side of caution and tries not to do things that would, you know, could be seen as putting a thumb on the scale of the election, whatever the, whoever's running. Yeah. And, and what is in black and white is a, is a Bill Barr memo saying that if you're going to open an investigation into a candidate for president or, a vice president or a sitting president or a vice president, you have to get express written consent from the attorney general himself. And I, you know, I'm assuming if these documents were discovered and handed over the day before an election, it's going to take a minute to get all the way up to the attorney general and they're going to have to be discussions. And, you know, I don't know exactly when Merrick Garland put Lausch on it, but I'm assuming it was pretty soon after. Yeah, I think Lausch is assigned by Garland's timeline that he put out yesterday on November 14th. Okay. Lausch was assigned. So, you know, let's um I think you I think you're right. There's no I mean, look, DOJ and FBI are not in a position where they're going to like immediately tell the world that they've started an inquiry into a matter like this, whether it's before the election or not. I mean, they don't you know, you know, you don't get public announcements on the opening of investigations. Biden certainly was not under any legal obligation to tell anyone. So um, it's not a legal issue. It is a political issue. It's 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 an optics issue. I think that people are rightly concerned about like, did they conceal this intentionally? Did they not? And that's, you know, that's up for people to determine for themselves whether they like the way the White House has handled the messaging around this. I think it's been pretty hackneyed and mm. certainly not very productive, but um, that's just a political thing. I think it's important to remember that uh, President Biden and his team haven't done anything illegal or improper or unethical on this in this saga so far. And I would say I would go the other direction and say they've actually hurt themselves by leaning so far forward and trying to be um, incredibly careful and cooperative with the discoveries that they've made. They, of course, did notify the archives immediately upon the discovery in the Penn Biden Center office. Sounds like they notified the archives immediately on finding the first tranche of documents at the residence. That's the one that they didn't really reveal in their initial announcement of what was going on. But they were very, very forward-leaning with the archives. And then, of course, they told, you know, they announced it just the other day when they found another document or two at the residence. 
that leaning forward and trying to be, um, you know, transparent about it, it creates the impression of like drip, drip, drip. They don't really know what they're dealing with. They haven't completed their searches yet. Um, and that, so that I think makes them look bad. They're actually kind of punishing themselves a bit publicly in their zeal to be like, okay, look, we found another one. Um, and all of that is actually pretty good compared to the treatment the archives and DOJ and the FBI have received in the other case, the Mar-a-Lago case. Yeah. I mean, we could pull a Mark Meadows and just burn him in a fireplace and no one would ever know. Yeah. There's always that option. <laughs> it's not legal. I'm not advising it, but yeah, no, it's, it's possible. Do not take our legal recommendations. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, something else that's uh, interesting I, that I wanted to talk about, how does this impact? Because when, when the Biden stories first started coming out with the Biden documents, I'm like, oh, is this going to make it more difficult for Jack Smith to indict Trump for these crimes, even though they're totally different? But, you know, taking into political considerations, you know, some maybe yep. prosecutorial discretion, uh, I thought no. And then it occurred to me that the DOJ knew about these documents before Jack Smith was even appointed. And That's right. Jack Smith's been going after the Trump's document case hard in the paint. Like, yeah. so it doesn't seem like this is a if impacting his work. But I do think, and I'm interested in your opinion, that the appointment of the second special counsel kind of evens the odds and makes it sort of insulates Jack Smith's work a little bit further. Uh, and, you know, if we come whatever comes out of the Robert Herr investigation, it, it sort of, I don't know if freeze up is the right word or, or is an assist to Jack Smith, but like, I feel like it allows him to do his work more and, in, you know, more independently or less political minded than, than if there weren't a special counsel or the, you know, for the, where they, it looked like we were ignoring the Joe Biden documents uh, in, incident. Well, I think you're, I think, I think that's correct. I think it was absolutely essential for DOJ to appoint a special counsel over the Biden issue. I, I've been saying that for a couple of days. I'm not surprised that Garland did it. It's completely consistent with his approach to these things. Um, and so I, and I also think it was very important that they started each case kind of on the same footing, giving it the same, you know, uh, resources, the same importance, everything else. And, and that would mean special counsels in both. From there, the cases are entirely independent. And I, I think that Jack Smith doesn't give an F what happens in the Biden case. He is laser focused on his case, his facts and his law. And we have seen that he's going to go after a resolution in this thing, one way or the other, whether whoever likes it or not. Now, I do think that at the end, and even now putting on kind of a a political hat, I guess, which does not fit me well because I'm not a political <laughs> analyst. But I think it's better in the long run for it's definitely better for DOJ, as I've said, but it's also better for the Biden team to have a special counsel come in. If 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 what they've said so far is true and accurate, and Biden didn't really know about any of these stuff and he had no role in, you know, packing up the office and sending the stuff here and there and everywhere, which I think is likely. And they have nothing to worry about. And the fact that a special counsel, a guy with hers background and kind of, you know, conservative creds uh, comes in and is ultimately gives him some some version of a clean bill of health. I think that's better yeah. than having it look like it got swept under the table and, and got special treatment at a DOJ. So, yeah, I mean, does that protect Jack Smith more? Not really. I mean, Smith is going to get crucified no matter which way he comes in with this thing, whether he pursues an indictment or issues a declination on it, one side or the other, one side is going to be furious and they're going to go after him hard. Yeah. And and before we take a, a quick break here and, and after the break, we're going to shift over to these this huge tranche of subpoenas that has just dropped uh, this week. Uh, tell me a little bit about what you know about Robert Herr. I had never heard of him uh, before, before, prior to Merrick Garland's announcement. Uh, but I think that you probably have a, a better handle on who this guy is. Yeah. So I, I, I know Rob because I worked with him uh, during the end of my term as uh, deputy director. I, you know, honestly, Allison, I've been, it's hard. It's, I've been struggling a little bit with how to answer that question on TV over the last 24 hours. Cause you don't really get a chance to elaborate too much in some of those hits. So, so the Jack listeners are going to get what I really think right now, which I haven't really been able to go into. So 
Rob is um, Rob is an interesting guy, and he is. Uh, I would say I would describe it like this: uh, Rob on paper is absolutely perfect for this job. His resume is flawless. You talk about Harvard undergrad, Stanford law, incredible clerking experiences early in his post law school uh, life with the Rehnquist, um, right? Yeah, clerked for Rehnquist, clerked also for Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit, who's a very controversial guy. I'm sure Rob points more to his clerkship with Rehnquist than Kaczynski at this point. But nevertheless, he um, he worked as a prosecutor in Maryland for a while under Rod Rosenstein. He did some time in DOJ, Maine, where he worked for Christopher Ray. Of all people, I think the two of them are probably pretty close. Um, That's right. He was the PAYDAG, right? Principal yeah, Assistant yeah, Deputy he, Attorney General. That's right. And he also did some time in um, King and Spaulding, which is the law firm that Chris Ray came from and is the law firm where Rod Rosenstein now, now works. So um, Rod has very, very deep um, connections on the – he's a Washington lawyer, and he's got very deep connections on the conservative side. Now, he was PAYDAG, which is Principal Assistant Deputy Attorney General, and that's a long, crazy title. But essentially, you really – not officially, but effectively the number three most powerful person in DOJ. You are the right hand of the deputy attorney general. So Rod Rosenstein as DAG brought Rob Her in as pay DAG. That's what we call that. And um, wouldn't that make him, if he were number three after Sessions recused, wouldn't that make him number two in specific uh, cases? I I can't think of any off the top of my head. Oh, there was one little case that you've, I think <laughs> I know, I think you know a little bit about. Yeah. So he, and, and I should say that um, in his own answers to Senate questions around his confirmation for his most recent government job, which was U.S. Attorney for Maryland, he described himself as managing the day-to-day -day operations of the Department of Justice and FBI. And I think that's an accurate descriptor. So yes, in the Mueller special counsel case, um, Rob was essentially the number two. And this is where I think the kind of perfection of his resume is great, but let's put that aside and think a little bit deeper here. Rob was part of the Trump DOJ leadership team. And that is a team that was involved with a number of decisions and things that I think raise important questions now about Rob's current job. And the first would be the Mueller investigation. So we now know, of course, that Rob Herr was Rod Rosenstein's guy that he used to oversee the special counsel work. Rob Herr met with, according to reports, the special counsel team like twice a week. And he was the guy that talked to Mueller and the Mueller team and brought that information back and reported it back to the acting attorney general for that case, who was Rod Rosenstein. We also know that Rod and Rob Herr, presumably, very, very carefully and quietly curtailed the investigative scope of that investigation in ways that were not disclosed to the public. We only found that out later on with the infamous second memo telling the telling Mueller how to do his job. So he had a lot of interaction with that team. He was involved in kind of keeping it in a lane that everybody was more comfortable with. So I think that's interesting. So he helped, Rob quote unquote, land the plane. Presumably. You know, I think that's, I think that I don't know that for a fact because by that point I was gone, but I think that's a fair question. Um, and he also, I mean, look, we know there was a lot, I know from my own personal experience with these guys before I left, there was a lot of, I think what could be described as questionable or uncomfortable kind of bleed over of White House politics into DOJ you know, operations and decision-making. And I think a good example of that is, is Rob Herr taking the podium at the White House to announce um, some accomplishments in a big MS-13 arrest. I mean, that is not done, right? DOJ com criminal operations are uh, supposed to be independent of White House political direction. And so that was an act that I thought was really questionable. So I I just throw this out there to say there are some things that stand out in my mind as good questions to keep in the back of your head as we watch Rob Herr do his job on this very important case. Um, and at the end of the day, we'll see. We're going to watch it. We're going to talk to you all about it. We're going to report on it. And we're going to 
overanalyze everything as we <laughs> typically do, and we'll see how he does, right? So he certainly is capable of doing a great job there, and I hope that he does. Yeah, I hope so too. All right, we have a lot more news to get to, but we have to take a quick break, so stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. All right, let's kick off the second half of the show with the January 6th part of the investigation. And we'll talk about the latest tranche of subpoenas issued by the special counsel's office. And Andrew, this to me, I follow these things very closely. This seems like the broadest and most detailed round of subpoenas we've seen thus far. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I listen, I... I don't think anyone can say they follow these things as closely as you do. So, I mean, all all hats off. Um, but I, I've been reading these descriptions of these things as well. And I like, I can't even think of a subpoena in the entirety of my 21 year career at the Bureau that um, would be similar to this. Like this, this thing must be monstrous. Yeah. And and we'll start here. First of all, a copy was received by the Washington Post who got it from a former Trump campaign official who wants to remain anonymous. Uh, it was sent out in early December. It's four pages long, Andrew. It is four pages long. <laughs> That's a lot of subpoena. And it was sent from what we know so far, at least, to multiple Trump campaign officials. And it seeks two dozen categories of information. And we'll start here. First of all, it asks recipients if anyone is paying their legal fees. And it asks for copies of those retention agreements. Uh, and perhaps that might have been fueled by the Passantino Cassidy Hutchinson situation that unfolded before our eyes in the January 6th committee hearings, where, you know, at first she was, you know, represented by Passantino, who was paid for by the Trump Save America PAC. And then she said, this feels gross. I feel like I lied. And then gets a new attorney. Jody, yeah. is it Jody? No, I can't remember. Jody Hunt. Jody Hunt, Jody Hunt right. is her current attorney. Yeah, Stefan Passatino. That the one of the things about that all that that blockbuster testimony that really jumped out at me was in the very first meeting when he was explaining to her that she didn't need to worry about who was paying his bill. She didn't. He wouldn't identify who that was. And when she asked him for a retention agreement, he he refused to give her one, which is. I'll just say, not typical among, yeah. among lawyers. Like, holy cow. And so here it is in the subpoena, who's paying your legal bills and show me your retention agreements. I mean, it's almost pulled right out of this. Yeah. Uh, and we know Cassidy Hutchin is cooperating with the Department of Justice. Uh, something else, they want any communications about Dominion and Smartmatic. And I think what they're looking for here, and you know that all the conspiracy theories about the voting machines, Dominion and Smartmatic, right now there are multiple billion dollar, a billion and a half dollar lawsuits against Fox News and their parent company and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell for, for defaming uh, Dominion and Smartmatic. And uh, what I think they're trying to establish here is a lot like what they're trying to establish with the election fraud, right? Like, or the... The fact that they could have Pence throw out electors and, and put in yeah. his own electors. Did they have conversations amongst themselves? What were those conversations? And do they show that they knew that this was these were all bogus conspiracy theories? It's a lot like when we got those Manafort texts with uh, with Hannity talking about how they knew that the Seth Rich conspiracy theory was a lie. And I, that's, that's so right. I, I'm interested in this. Yeah, this is a critical element of a very basic fraud in this whole scheme. And the fraud would be if you're going out there and 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 making public statements about how um about how Smartmatic and Dominion, you know, flipped the election through some sort of vote machine skullduggery. Uh, and then you use those claims as a basis for asking for money and donations from people. If the government can prove that you knew that that claim was false, that goes a long way to proving the fraud. The rest is just mechanics that you actually did get paid and and you you know you took payments through the mail to make it mail fraud or you know over the internet to make it wire fraud, what have you. So really drilling down on people's behind the scenes private comments and statements to each other, that those comments could hold. Uh, those sorts of revelations, like, you know, where, where people admit or acknowledge that they know that there's really nothing wrong with Smartmatic and Dominion. 
and I should say also the civil case here helps helps the government out a lot because the uh, plaintiffs' attorneys, the folks representing Dominion and Smartmatic against a lot of these people, are doing the same work. To, in the defamation case, they also want to prove that the defendants knew that the statements that Dominion and Smartmatic claim are defamatory were actually false. That goes a long way to proving defamation. So you, you can see here the prosecution is kind of in a position to benefit off the work that these very high-speed, well-funded plaintiffs' attorneys are doing in the civil case. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the next demand is what makes me think that this is trying to prove that they defrauded donors, because um, after we go through the communications about Dominion and Smartmatic, they are the subpoena is seeking documents related to the formation, funding, use of money, employment contracts, and correspondence for multiple Trump entities, including the Save America PAC. Uh, and those other entities are the Make America Great Again PAC, the Save America Joint Fundraising Committee, and the Trump Make America Great Again Committee. And they are really now seemingly, and, and uh, you know, they say elsewhere in this Washington Peace Post that they are really focusing on the money and, and the fundraising and the emails that went out. Uh, and, and so I feel like that Dominion Smartmatic is a piece of that, right? Totally, totally. So what, what and I, I hate, you know, I hesitate to get too specific about this, but what this feels like to me from an investigator and prosecutor side is um, Jack Smith's team is gravitating towards these fraud crimes that are much easier to prove. You can put your hands on this fraud. You can understand, you know, you lied to these people in order to trick them into giving you money. The money went into these packs. That's very tangible. Compare that to how do you prove that um, you know Trump allegedly committed, um, you know, conspired to provoke a riot? Because now you're like, well, what did he say, and what what did he mean, and is that speech protected? Is it First Amendment protected? Is it political speech? So those cases, while being very significant, have all kinds of proof problems and thorny issues in them. These fraud cases, this is what DOJ does every day in a thousand different cases around the country. They're very meaty. You can find evidence to easily prove up the elements of each offense. And so uh, that's why I think these financial cases, which you really weren't thinking about at the beginning of this whole thing, are really emerging to be important as we go forward. Yeah. And that brings up the next little piece of very specific information they mention, aside from all the multiple packs and the Dominion and Smartmatic stuff, something that I have been wondering about since I heard it in the January 6th committee when Zoe Lofgren brought it to light. And that is they are demanding documents related to the genesis of the election defense fund. Uh, the January 6th committee found that it never actually existed. But the first email That's a problem. <laughs> yeah. And the first emails uh, sent out uh, raising money for the election defense fund went out on November 4th, the day after the election, three days yeah. before Biden even was declared the victor. The emails went out for nine weeks, Andy, some t sometimes 25 a day for Yikes. the election defense fund. He raised $250 million off this phantom entity that never existed. The money, at least some of it, went to the Save America PAC and paid for the January 6th ellipse rally. Uh, and this sort of is, I just was watching this report last night uh, about the George Santos shell game that he's been playing with these different <laughs> entities and, you know, pulling money from one and sticking it into another and, and having a pack that raises money but doesn't spend it on anything. I was like, yeah. this seems like just a sort of their MO here. But I've always wondered about this election defense fund uh, that apparently was stood up the day after the election, but never actually existed. And that seems like a open and shut defrauding donors case, because unlike the Jill Stein, uh, you know, recount fund, she said, hey, yeah. uh, if if I can't get a re recount in some states, I'm going to use this to the pack and we're going to do this. And she told everybody where it was going to go. But in these in these right. Trump emails, he's just like, help me. We have to stop the steal. We must protect the elections. Send me money now. It will go toward fighting this in court. And that's it. There was no fine print. Yeah, the frenzy to capitalize on the anger and the kind of grievance of the, uh oh, we're going to lose this election. 
um, was was all all consuming, right? They were just like sprinting out there to get these emails out, to get these to say whatever they needed to give people a place to donate, uh, to capitalize on as much anger and and grievance as they could at that time. And unfortunately, it looks like once again they may have sprinted past their lawyer's advice yeah. and not actually set up the infrastructure you need to do that legally. Who knows? We'll see where where this where this all goes. But um, yeah, it's it's these are the kind of mistakes that bring down conspiracies that prosecutors after the fact will go back and say, but wait a second, you're required to, you know, register here, register with the Federal Election Committee, whatever. And, you know, the kind of expose the mad rush to defraud uh, rather than, um, you know, doing something legitimately. Yeah. And and so I'm really going to keep my eye on that particular uh, one, because, I mean, if you tell people you're raising money to spend in court to fight the election fraud, quote unquote, that you think exists, and then you funnel that money into your pack, give it to yourself or use it to pay attorneys that are you know representing witnesses against you. I mean, it just seems like a uh, an open and shut fraud case to me, but we'll see how it goes. A uh, couple other things: this, these subpoena, and, and by the way, this isn't everything these subpoenas are seeking. These are just the big hit points here. Just the highlights. <laughs> the subpoenas seek information on the fraudulent elector scheme, and they name over 100 fraudulent electors in seven states. And we know those seven states, right? Let me see if I can name them off the top of my head: Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New Mexico, Nevada, and Arizona. Um, it asks campaign officials to provide any analysis they did on whether the election was stolen and whether they shared that analysis with others. And this made me think of the Johnny McEntee uh, deposition that was taken by the January 6th Select Committee, where he was told to write up a thing about how Thomas Jefferson did this. And so it's OK. And then give that <laughs> over to John Eastman and the president or whatever. And so they're looking for all of that. So this isn't just about the fundraising. This is still going on with the fraudulent elector stuff, just more things that we didn't see asked for in previous subpoenas. And it demands documents about the Ellipse rally, including the fundraising, right, which we now know mm. has come from some of the PACs, uh, the planning and the coordination with outside groups. And th this is where it, uh, the Ginny Thomas stuff would come into play, because I know that she helped fundraise. I know the Save America PAC paid for a lot of the of the rally. We've seen sort of that evidence come out of the January 6th committee. So this is a huge, like massive subpoena. I'm waiting for someone to sue to say it's too broad. Um, yeah, you can count. That's going to happen mm -hmm. at some point. But um, but it's very detailed. It is. It's incredibly detailed. I'm, I'm also fascinated about the the kind of uh, walking towards the ellipse rally issue, because in the aftermath of reading, I think it was Don Jr.'s testimony to the 1-6 committee, uh, he talks a lot about the different factions of people who were involved in organizing and deciding who would speak when. And there were all kinds of, as it turns out, all kinds of disagreements between different people involved in in that process and making decisions about how the rally would go. And where there's disagreement among people, there's opportunity for investigators. Those are the sorts of conflicts that investigators and prosecutors can really take advantage of to find out more information than we currently know. So it, who knows? Buckle in. We'll see what comes of it. But um, that could be really interesting as we go forward. Yeah, I remember the Boris Epstein text where they're like, we got to stick with the Kramers and screw that Ali Alexander guy. He's a fraud, you know. And so that sort of infighting is like ripe, right? For yeah, investigators totally. to be like, really tell <laughs> us about that Ali Alexander fraud and why he's a fraud. Really, let's come in and talk yeah. to us about it. It's like investigating a guy and then finding out that he's in the middle of a divorce. It's like, okay, <laughs> game on. Because we might have a new uh we might have a new source of information here. That happened with uh, that cock guy, right? That the, the that Manafort wanted to make the secretary of the army. The DOJ got all sorts of, of <laughs> I think, evidence I think that's right. from his divorce, and he was eventually convicted of bribery. Yeah, uh, That's funny. Um, and then something else that came out this week, Andrew, that I think might have been part of an early discovery of part of this subpoena, but I, you know, this round of subpoenas, but I'm not sure, is that Caitlin Polans at CNN 
uh, reported that Jack Smith's team had subpoenaed Rudy Giuliani, asking him to turn over records to a federal grand jury as part of the investigation. Uh, and it was sent a month ago, same as these other, this other wide giant subpoenas we just talked about. It, it came from somebody named David Rohde, who is a former top prosecutor in New York who specializes in gang and conspiracy cases, who is assisting Jack Smith. And uh, this subpoena, Andrew, for Rudy, asked for disbursements about disbursements from the Save America PAC, among other things that weren't discussed with Caitlin Polance. So this seems like maybe part of this tranche of of uh, of subpoenas. But do you know David Rohde? I don't know who that is. I don't know David Rohde, um, but I'm not surprised that Jack Smith is relying on a guy who is known for his um, prior experience doing uh, gang cases and, and violent conspiracy cases because it's essentially, while it's different in subject matter from what we're looking at here, it's very similar in tactics and in strategy. These are big, complicated cases where you're trying to knit together the conspiracy or the agreement between a a, a group of people. You're trying to prove the existence of an enterprise. You're trying to um, you're looking for evidence of an agreement between a group of people to to break the law or commit some sort of crime. You're, you're the same sort of tactics in in uh, recruiting cooperators and people who will testify for you in court. So it's a it's a wealth of experience that could easily translate into this complicated potential financial conspiracy. Yeah, and and you know right now I'm actually trying to look up David Rohde here, but I'm not really finding anything like he doesn't have his own wiki page uh he was in new york i uh, the reason i was looking it up is because i was wondering if he had ever worked with or for rudy giuliani in new york when he was the u.s <laughs> attorney like that's interesting a gang and conspiracy crime prosecutor from new york who's looking into rudy giuliani okay that's yeah. really um that's you know talk about think- the shoe on the other foot right yeah although i think most of rudy's former southern district colleagues or subordinates, whatever they were, uh, are, are are a bit older than the Jack Smith generation of guys that, that we're dealing with now. So I'm sure I know all kinds of uh, all kinds of friends who actually worked under Rudy there. They're probably mad at me right now, but that's okay. They'll get uh-uh. over it. Yeah, you'll be all right. I'll be your friend. Um, Thank you. <laughs> this last story uh, before we wrap up here is uh, from Kyle Cheney at Politico. Apparently, uh, you know, I remember uh, when we were talking to uh, Mr. Chuck Rosenberg about the release of all the evidence from the January 6th committee and how he was very displeased uh, because it uh, can inhibit or, you know, make it more difficult for prosecutors to do their jobs. Uh, And then, you know, we, we were like, well, now it looks like the new House Republicans want to release it all. And so maybe it's a good idea to put it out to the public so that they can't cherry pick and make, yeah. make you know, misrepresent it. Yeah, misrepresent it. But now we know that all of it's been given over to the archives. And I would imagine that the archives and, and the executive and the department would be like, we're not handing you over anything pursuant to an open and ongoing criminal investigation. And they'd probably go to court and all that other stuff. We'll see how that plays out. But apparently there was about 30 gigabytes worth of evidence that was not released to the public that has been handed over to the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice, presumably the special counsel's office is currently pouring through this evidence. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Okay. So now to further date myself, uh, this, this is for all the, um, this is for all the Gen Xers and older who are listening right now. What is 30 gigabytes? I love, I love these conversions. <laughs> it's, it's, According to the the interwebs, it is 120 hours of Netflix streaming, right? So that's a long time to watch Emily in Paris. Um, <laughs> or it could be 1,950,000 pages of Word files. That's a lot of pages. Or 100,000 pages of email. So bottom line is we're looking at a lot of stuff here. 30 gigabytes, I think, kind of makes it sound small, but it's a big chunk of stuff. Um I think it's really interesting too, because this is really cutting at the heart of what a lot of us, Chuck and myself and others were concerned about for the last couple of months, that this material presents a real challenge for DOJ, particularly in the cases that are already ongoing and are on their way to trial. And that because that's because the government is in possession of this stuff. 
that could uh, fall within their their um, responsibility to turn it over to defendants to meet their discovery obligations in any given uh, prosecution. Yeah, and apparently this actually came out. We, we've learned about this. Um, Kyle Cheney reported it from a filing by the Department of Justice in the Oath Keepers uh, trial. Not the first one, the one that's already not the one that's already been. You know, they've already been convicted. The second Oath Keepers trial. Um, because the Oath Keepers wanted to delay the trial because they wanted to be able to review all the January 6th evidence that was released last month. And they said there's so much of it. But the Department of Justice argues that there's still outstanding material anyway. And it's also not really relevant to your case. So that's really interesting. Uh, but among the materials um, that have gone uh, unreleased that are now being reviewed by the DOJ, these are the things that were omitted from the January 6th committee's, you know, a tranche of stuff that they put out after after they shut down. Uh, they're missing text messages from Ivanka. Well, they're not missing, but they didn't release text messages from Ivanka Trump referenced in her January 6th interview. Extensive texts between Cassidy Hutchinson and multiple key figures in the Trump administration. And that brings me, boom, right back to the subpoena with all of the information that they're asking for about whether your lawyers are being paid by the Save America yep. PAC and, and all that stuff and that she's working with the Department of Justice. So I don't know if the DOJ was like, you do not release those Cassidy Hutchinson text <laughs> messages, please. <laughs> Um, text between a top Pence aide and a Ron Johnson aide. Remember that when they were trying to get oh, yeah. Ron Johnson to just commit a couple of minutes of treason, uh, you know, where they wanted him to hand deliver fraudulent elector certificates to Pence himself on the floor of the of the the House or the Capitol. And or I think it which was... Ron uh, uh, Ron Johnson very quickly tried to blame the entire <laughs> thing on his staffer. Wow, yeah. that's courage. Yes. Yikes. And the entire transcript of Robert Engel. The, that wasn't released, which apparently is supposed to give us insight into whose testimony was more correct, Cassidy Hutchinson's or Tony Ornato's, right? Mm. And then I'm sure he had a lot of other things to say, too. It wasn't yeah. just that, because that was sort of a sideshow drama. Um, it was We knew Trump wanted to go to the Capitol. Whether he lunged at somebody or not is sort of irrelevant. Sure. Um, I mean, it's, it's flashy. It's an interesting story, but uh, that's not part of the this you know the intent and and trying to process whether yeah. or not he was being corrupt at the time or what his intentions were so anyway angles uh, transcript is not there either so that's very interesting it's a lot of stuff and i and, you know i think just to kind of uh i know we've talked about this before but just to remind folks so like prosecutors are uh, they have discovery obligations and discovery obligations basically are are relative to two different types of information. One is any prior statements of a witness. If the government is in, in possession of a prior statement of a witness, somebody who's going to testify in the trial, they have to turn that over to the defense. And that's so the defense can review it and, and use it to cross-examine that person. And they also are obligated to turn over any information they have that's exculpatory to the defendants. And not just like things that say they're a nice guy, but things that are that contradict the government's case specifically, you know, the prosecution of that person. So um, it's understandable that the government would say, well, you know, none of this stuff is relevant um, um, or it's not discoverable. But honestly, they're in a tough spot. They have a lot of information that they have to pour through. You could easily see how, depending on who the government's witnesses are going to be in any one of these cases, like the Proud Boys case that's starting that started this week, or the Oath Keepers Round Two uh, sedition case that's coming up in a little bit. Um, they might decide not to put on particular witnesses because there are these prior statements to the January 6th committee that are that are not good for the witness that make the witness look recollections look poor or you know maybe untruthful or something like that. Um, that's why it was so, so important for the Department of Justice to get these transcripts as soon right. as possible. Uh, again, it wasn't because the Department of Justice didn't feel like doing the interviews themselves. It's because they need to look for inconsistencies in witness right. testimony so that they cannot be impeached at trial. It uh, and you know, and then also to not be caught in a in a Brady problem, a Brady materials problem, where you have yeah. exculpatory information. Or, and so it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the court responds to the Department of Justice saying these aren't really relevant. They, maybe the court wants to look at them uh, itself and make a determination about relevance. Uh, I I don't know how any of that works, but it, they are in a tough spot. That's for yeah, sure. typically DOJ errs on the side of caution, as with all things, and they they turn over things in discovery that are 
arguably not even discoverable. They have a pretty broad, you know, they have a lot of discretion to determine that. It drives agents crazy when they're <laughs> turning over information about the agent sources that the agents don't think is discoverable. Nevertheless, and here you're seeing defense attorneys making very uh, predictable hay out of an opportunity to delay. Hey, there's a lot of stuff out there and, you know, we haven't received it yet. And, you know, they can use those sort of uh, objections and, and motions to the judge to th slow things down or just gum up the works. That's that's what defense attorneys do. Yeah. Or, you know, to be fair, it's in the portal, right? Because this is the biggest evidence sharing portal of all time with this January mm -hmm. 6th stuff. And, and you know, there's millions of new pages. Um, yep. it, it's actually not outside of the realm of, you know, you know, being reasonable to say, hey, can we have another month to look through this stuff to make sure there's nothing exculpatory? Uh, but DOJ is arguing against it. So that's right. We'll we'll see how that rolls out and how it you know, if they don't allow additional time, if that comes up on appeal, um, which I'm most certain it would. Um, and, and we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I'm sure we will. We will <laughs> we'll be here to sort through it and uh, talk about it and explain it uh, to the best of our ability. And I look forward to doing that. It's been a crazy week. Who knows? Maybe this time next week we have a third special counsel. You never know. It could happen. Yeah, we'll just get a new special counsel every week until indictments <laughs> happen. Uh, well, thank you again, uh, Andrew. It's been a, a great show. We've got, I think we've got a lot of information out. Um, we will be here. We'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, talking about special counsels, plural, and <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, you know, I'm still waiting for you know that that reporting from uh, Zoe Tillman that you know he's going to make some charging decisions here, possibly within weeks. Uh, yep. And we're we're coming up on that, so it'll be interesting That's to right. see. So. That's right. That's right. Thanks everybody for listening. If you have a question for us, you can send it in to us at hello at mullersherote.com. Just put Jack in the subject line and uh, we'll pick a question of the week. It has been great. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andrew McCabe. And we'll see you next week. M S W Media. <laughs>